Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Attachments podcast. My name is Jessica De Silva, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and an attachment coach helping adults end their unhealthy dating patterns and create stronger, secure relationships. Attachment theory gives us insight into how we currently experience love through understanding our earlier attachment dynamics. I created this podcast as a safe space to share stories and insights on different aspects aspects of attachment so that you can better understand how this manifests in your own life. My only request is that you listen with an open heart and an open mind. So without further ado, let's get into it. Today on the podcast, we have Gabrielle Gonzalez. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and anxiety relief coach. She specializes in helping women with high functioning anxiety, release self-criticism and grow self-love. Gabrielle is passionate about the use of mindfulness to support anxiety relief, as well as passionate about the use of affirmation development as a tool for rewiring the brain and reshaping behavior so that life can be lived with more peace, presence, and confidence. Gabrielle is also a dear friend and colleague of mine, so I'm really happy to have her here on the podcast so that she can share her wonderful insights on how we can self-soothe in order to experience a healthier relationship with ourselves, with others, and with the world. So without further ado, here we go. So thank you, Gabrielle, for being here today. I am really excited that you're here because self-soothing has been a topic that Uh, or a question that I get asked a lot, you know, people having these, um, you know, the anxious attachment style or the fearful avoidant or the dismissive avoidant and, you know, all of them experiencing anxiety, but they just don't know how to manage those emotions when they're happening in the moment. So I thought you would be such a great person to have on the podcast and talk about this because not only do you teach it, but you also practice it yourself. And so I know that your insights are going to be just really insightful and raw and real. So, so thank you for being here. Oh yeah. Jess, thank you for allowing me and inviting me to come on here. Um, it, it's a really anxiety, particularly and anxious attachment is something that's really close to my heart. Um, because not only do I obviously work with clients that struggle with these things, but I struggled with it and knowing, you know, us knowing one another for a while, I know you have heard about and seen what that process has been like, uh, experiencing anxious symptoms and then working through them and then coming to a place of feeling confident and helping other people cope as well. So I will say that I'm I'm especially honored because I just know professionally and personally that um, it's frustrating. It's super frustrating to know you have these challenges and rationally want to change them, but emotionally not feel as in control as you'd like to feel. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And so much of cultivating a secure attachment comes with learning this skill. And it's so wonderful that it is a skill that even though you did not learn how to self-soothe in the past or when you were younger, it doesn't mean that you can't learn it now and thus create that secure attachment to yourself and others. So this is really great. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people, typically people coming to therapy don't have this belief, but they have people in their life who have this belief that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But we're not we're not dogs. I'm not a dog expert, <laughs> so that might be very true, but we're humans and as someone who understands what's going on in the brain, I know for a fact, you yeah. know, we know for a fact you can change that. Yeah. It's it is magical what we can do with our minds and how we can transform. Actually, since you're talking about, um, you know, the fact that we can change the neuroscience behind us, do you mind just, I'm, I'm going to start switching my questions here, but here we go. Can you tell us really quickly, you know, what is, what is the, how, why can we change? Why is it that we can learn this new skill? Good question. <laughs> this is my jam lately, especially so our brain has plasticity. I know you've talked about this before in, you know, different posts that you've made. And I think even emails that you've shared. I love it. I love yes. It. Yeah. Our brain has plasticity. So the, and this is the glorious thing about living in this day and age is there's research to show that our brain is malleable. We can change it. And just as much as trauma or stress can change the brain, so can implementing healing strategies, taking intentional, committed action to shifting those beliefs or those experiences in the mind. So a little bit of the science behind that, um, we have, what is it, billions of neurons firing in the brain at a time. And these neurons are all connecting to one another in order to build brain structure around particular beliefs, ideals. And so what happens is when we are constantly in a pattern of thinking about something a certain way, we are building more and more brain structure around that idea. Mm -hmm. And so in order to shift that, which we can, we would then need to intentionally think different thoughts, but not just think different thoughts. We have to help our brain feel safe and soothed and secure because our brain is has and holds certain beliefs because it is trying to help us. It's saying, I've been conditioned to believe this is the way to be. This is what keeps me safe and secure. And so I will continue to do that over and over again. Even if my rational brain says this isn't working, the emotional brain says, keep doing that. So we have the amygdala, which is at that deep lower region of the brain, which when it perceives a threat of some sort, the alarm goes off. The amygdala is like the alarm of the brain. It says something's wrong, alert, alert, alert. We got to do something about it. And then this is going to signal the hypothalamus to tell the body it's time to release certain hormones and get ready for fight flight or freeze response. Mm -hmm. Or if we're able to soothe that part of the brain, it will tell the hypothalamus to signal the body. Let's inhibit those hormones were actually good. No need to fight, flight, freeze. Everything's under control. And so we stop certain hormones from releasing in the body. And then we release others that are soothing. And so we stabilize the nervous system. And all of this 
happening and us being able to observe this in research and through brain scans and whatnot also tells us that we have the capability to go one way or the other depending on how we respond to that automatic thought or behavior that's coming up and the more repetitively we respond in a healthy, soothing way that allows us to feel more secure. We build more brain structure around the fact or the idea that I am safe, I am secure, everything's going to be okay in my life. Mm. And even when things aren't okay, I can weather the storm. And so, yeah, the the concept that our brain has plasticity our brain is always here to help us at its very core. It's survival. <laughs> That's it. Like we got to, we got to survive. And so the brain gets into these habits of doing things a certain way for survival. Um, yeah. Knowing these concepts yeah. can allow us to hopefully start making shifts. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so important to understand the science of what is happening um, because with that knowledge, there's awareness into, you know, how your brain operates. So if you know how your brain operates, you can change it, right? You can implement new strategies. You can, you can make it work for you as opposed to having it work against you unknowingly. Um, and I love that you brought up safety because the brain is just looking for safety, even though, even though what's familiar might not be safe logically, right? Um, it, it, it's seeking safety. So something that's helped me so much is, is repeating to myself, like I am safe, I am safe or creating a safe environment. Um, you know, listening to affirmations has been so helpful that just promote this feeling of safety and calm and peace. So I would love to hear, um, well, actually, before we go into strategies, tell me a little bit about your story and how, self-soothing has helped you feel more safe and grounded in yourself and in your life okay my story hmm. where to start so I would say that I started to really recognize anxiety within myself without knowing what it was really when I was a child and most of the anxiety came up around death my fear of death and dying, you know, myself dying or people around me dying and just being really confused about honestly, what happens to all my stuff? Where's my teddy bear going to go? <laughs> and these were some of the thoughts I would have as a kid was that recognizing the temporary nature of things and it being really distressing for me. Throughout my childhood, I would go to my dad for a lot of emotional support, but my dad and I cope in different ways. He's a very logical person and I'm much more emotions-based. So he used logic to try to help me find a, a sense of safety and soothing, which in some ways worked, but it didn't always work for me. And the reason why I, I realize now years and years you know, past that is because when we're already triggered, our prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for that rational thinking, goes offline. And we're really functioning from that lower deep region of the brain, which says, you know, fight, flight, freeze. This is scary. This is bad. Do whatever you need to do or whatever's worked in the past. Mm -hmm. And so I learned to be in a panicked state 
a lot of the time because my brain, I conditioned my brain to believe that by being panicked and anxious and constantly on the lookout for something bad meant that I was protecting myself. I was looking out for danger all the time. And as long as I kept my eyes peeled for danger, I would stay safe. But that led me to have a really like activated nervous system. I was always scared. I was scared of the dark. I was scared of strange people. I was just scared all the time. And one thing that I had to do as a kid was I would hit something really, really hard to like make my hand tingle. Because what would happen is when my hand would tingle, I was forced to focus on that. I could feel the sensation of that. So essentially I was trying to help myself get present. And then that would help calm me down because I would realize I'm alive. So that, that kind of worked, but kind of didn't at the same time. You can't go around like just smacking things all the time. And also that, you know, in, in a sense could become an OCD behavior, right? An obsessive compulsive thing. You know, I'm obsessed with this fear. And so my compulsion is I hit something. And when I hit something, I feel soothed. And so this is an example of how the brain conditions itself to engage in certain patterns of behavior, even if they're not rational smacking my head against the dinner table doesn't change anything doesn't really fix anything it, it actually just kind of hurts right. so fast forward you know years and years I'm a junior in high school and my uh stepfather actually left our family unannounced he just bounced and that was really distressing and contributed to me developing a really anxious attachment style I was, I think, fairly securely attached, but sometimes more on the edge of anxious attached just growing up as a kid because I wanted a lot of validation from people. But after experiencing that abandonment, the anxious attachment really, really kicked into gear. And so what I found to be most helpful, and that happened a really long time ago. So over the years of healing, presence has been everything. And I knew it then. I knew it as a kid. I just didn't know how to access it in a way that felt truly soothing, in a way that actually helped my brain heal and strengthen in its ability to respond to stressful or anxious situations with effectiveness and so that I could hold on to that sense of peace and calm more regularly. So that's why I got super into mindfulness in grad school. I did that mindfulness retreat and it was just everything to me. And then I just never stopped. It just became the thing that I be, I was just head over heels for was being mindfully connected to the present moment. And that was huge because what I started to also learn was I'm not my, I'm not just my brain. I am my left pinky. I am my right heel. I am my belly. I am my hips. I am my lungs. I am my gut. I am my ears, right? I'm my, I am my eyelashes. I'm all of this. It's all one thing. But so often I was focusing on the thoughts in my brain. And when I was so focused on that, I was really living in stories. I was living in these imaginary stories of what could happen rather than living in the very like true and real story of my life here and now. Ooh. So that was, I think the 
biggest, the biggest realization uh, to support my growth and my healing through anxiety. I love that you explained it that way, where because we can get so lost in the mind, right? Thinking I am my thoughts. I am my thoughts. I am my thoughts. We forget that, whoa, I am every other piece of my body. Also, I am my environment. I am the world. Like it it expands. Yeah. I am the space around me. I am the walls. I am the air. I am the trees. I am the sky. I am everything that I can perceive here and now. Yes. And when we're so stuck in the mind, we forget, not even that we forget, but we just don't see, we don't see, we don't recognize everything else out there. Wow. That is, that's beautiful. So beautifully said. So I'm curious, how did this anxiety affect your relationships? Ooh, <laughs> girl. Of, course, of course I'm going there. Of course I'm going there. Well, let's uh <laughs> let's go ahead and rewind back to undergrad. Oh my goodness. So you know my husband Kenny. Mm-hmm. Um he and I have been together forever. We we became boyfriend and girl, actually just celebrated our 14 years of, of from when we first became boyfriend and girlfriend when I was 17. And so now everybody knows what my age is. <laughs> so, Incredible. Incredible. Right. So at 17, we got together. Um, it was at 16 that my stepdad left. So my anxious attachment experience was in, was in full. Wow. Full blown. Yeah. Yeah. It was full blown. Right. That I was, I was there. That's what was happening. And I needed so much validation and reassurance. I think that's a better word here. I needed a lot of reassurance that you're not going to leave me. You're not going to disappear. Anything that made me feel uh, any sense of abandonment, yeah, I would freak out. So there were times when he would come with me to school and for whatever reason, let's say the service was bad or I couldn't get through to him on the phone. I would call him 25 times, 30 times, leaving panicked voicemails. And I mean, I would call every few seconds. I wouldn't even give it five minutes for him to call me back. I would just call and call and call. And where are you? Where are you? Where storming all over campus, trying to find him, you know, panic in this like panicked way, walking through the, you know, um, parking garage, looking to see like, where is he? Is he at the car? Is he walking around? Just flipping out. And there wasn't necessarily any reason for well there's never any reason to do that if someone's going to leave then we want to try to heal ourselves and find acceptance with that and let them leave if possible you know that's that would be the goal but if someone's there for you then there's especially not a reason to do that but my rational brain wasn't thinking I was thinking from that fear of abandonment And so that was one thing I remember happening when I was young was all of these phone calls. When he wouldn't answer, I couldn't wait. I would go, 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 go after him. And how did he respond to that? How did he respond to that? Oh, how did he respond to that? Um, I think it made him anxious too. I can't, I think he would get frustrated with me. It's hard for me to pinpoint. I mean, there was a lot of other stuff going on during that chapter too. Um, I think what I remember was him wanting to soothe me and be there for me, but also feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. Feeling overwhelmed. He wasn't going to leave me. 
And so I don't think it made sense. It didn't make sense to either of us from a rational point of view. Um, But it created tension in the relationship. And just like I would chase after him, if he wouldn't answer the phone, I would chase after him in arguments. So if we had a conflict and let's say the healthiest thing to do would be just step away, take a step away, let's breathe, let's separately cope. And then let's come back together in in an agreed upon amount of time to talk about it. I would not stop. You know, if he said he needed space, I took that as you don't want to be here for me. You don't want to be here for my emotions. You don't want to problem solve with me and we need to fix it and we need to fix it right now. Mm -hmm. And so that was hard too, because it would only escalate the arguments. It wouldn't actually help because what he was saying was, I have a need, I need space. And what I was saying was, well, I didn't mean to, but essentially what I was saying is I don't respect your needs because my needs are more important. And I think that's a lot of what is experienced with anxious attachment style is my needs are more important and, and they need to be seen as such. Because I think at one point for people who lean on that side of the spectrum, their needs weren't met. Or maybe their needs were met so much so, and then it was swiped and taken all from all the way. Right. And also because you're operating from such for survival, it feels like your need is the most important thing in the moment. Right? Oh my gosh, absolutely. And it's going back to that amygdala, right? That deeper, you know, um, part of the brain, which is the oldest part of the brain. It's been with us throughout the evolution of humankind yeah. for millions of years more. And so it's not rational, but it is conditioned to seek safety. Right. Right. My way of seeking safety was answer my call, call me back, agree with me, reassure me, give me validation, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Mm -hmm. And so it can be seen, I think, from the outside as being selfish, maybe. Yes. Too needy. Too Too needy. Yeah, but it's not. that's not the intention. I don't think for anyone who struggles with that, it's, I have needs and I'm scared they won't be met. And so I chase after someone to meet those needs for me, even if the relationship isn't healthy, which is actually what happened for Kenny and I, it did get to a point where the relationship wasn't healthy, where things were happening that weren't good for either of us. And I stuck with it anyway, because I was so anxious about not having this person. So I remain, I stayed in a situation that was driving us both insane until, you know, I had no choice anymore and left the relationship for a while until we were both able to heal and then came back together Mm -hmm. from a more secure place. And that was what really needed to happen was I needed to move from being an anxious attached person to more securely attached while he needed to go from being a pretty avoidant person to a more secure person as well. So we were on, you know, different ends, you know, different, what is it? Sides of the coin, different ends of the The spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. And we needed to find balance within ourselves so that we could then be there for each other. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's more I could share, but I'll pause there for now. Yeah, well, I love that. I love that. I'm thinking, so how, well, first of all, yeah. How was it for you to come to that realization and take that separation? Because the separating, especially when you're operating from that anxious attachment style, 
can feel like death. It could Ugh. feel so scary. And that's why they stay in these unhealthy relationship dynamics. How did you do it? How mm. did you do it? Um, well, I was sort of, I was, I was in a position where I had to make a choice. My choice was either remain in this situation, continue working and paying bills here and and do this, but you can't go to grad school or leave the relationship, move back in with your mom, stop paying bills. So that's not a, a stressor and go to grad school. So I really was at this fork in the road and I, I chose grad school over this relationship that wasn't healthy. Plus grad school was to become a therapist. And I knew I learned a lot that would help me along the way. It was extremely difficult. I think my anxiety was at its absolute peak during that time. Um, I could feel it throughout my whole body. Even just you asking me that question, mm -hmm. I could feel it in my chest. It, it felt like this balloon that expands at my heart center. And then, oh, you know, a better way of describing it is it feels like someone's filling a water balloon in my chest and it's just jiggling around in mm. that area. And it's so uncomfortable and it feels both heavy and buoyant and light, but also um, scary. Like I didn't feel grounded whatsoever. I think my face broke out like crazy. I oh. felt just really uncomfortable yeah as I say that it just makes me think about how one of the big things that might be helpful for people to remember is part of getting through it is allowing yourself to be that uncomfortable mm. is fi finding a good enough reason that's a big deal is what's your reason for doing yeah. it. And if your reason is good enough, then with that reason, you can decide to say, I choose to feel this pain because when we're not choosing to feel pain, we feel pretty out of control and it's a lot harder to find acceptance in that. But if we can say, I, I choose this because I have a really good reason for it. And I am going to also reconnect with my strengths so that I can know that I'm strong enough and that I have the courage to face these demons. Ooh, I love that you're saying this. First of all, for everyone listening, Gabby and I just connected immediately in graduate school. Um, and it's probably because I feel like we were on such similar paths. I my reason, because I was operating from a very fearful avoidant attachment style. So again, lots of anxiety, but also a lot of, um, well, a lot of anxious preoccupation, but also a lot of dismissiveness in a way. And my why, right? Like my reason for getting out of the relationship and, and choosing me and choosing to, to work on myself was because of graduate school was because I wanted to better myself. I wanted to, I wanted to have a good relationship. I wanted to feel more secure. Um, I just wanted to feel better. And for some reason that, that was my why. So I just love that you said you have to have a reason. What is your why for yeah. healing and progressing and evolving? Yeah. Yeah. I think that is, the game changer right there is know your reason. Yeah. Um, if I had to pinpoint what my reason was, I 
wanted to live a happy life and I wasn't happy and I knew it. And then I think about that fear of death Mm. and the recognition that my life is temporary. How long, how much of it am I going to spend feeling like this? I know. And that was a good enough reason for me to say something has to give, something needs to change. And that is, that's enough for me to step into that discomfort and be okay with it. Ooh, ooh, that's so, so good. So guys, figure out your why. What is your reason? What is your reason? And build on that, build on that. Um, Another thing I wanted to bring up actually that I've been thinking about recently and a lot of um, people that I work with that have more of this fearful avoidant attachment style have mentioned this too. But now that I've noticed for me personally, my life has gotten so much better. Like it has gotten so much better. I'm like, oh shit, now I'm having anxiety of the fact that, well, what if I like, what if I like life way too much, but I know I'm going to diet, I'm going to die someday. So, so now there's that problem where it's like, shit, now I like my life. Like, what do I do? And, you know, you can go into these sabotaging behaviors. Like maybe let's just make this kind of uncomfortable. Let's make this, you know, not that great so that you know, it's not going to be too sad when the day comes. What would you say to, to that? Like, what would you say to that? Is that something you experience or? It's not something I've experienced firsthand, but I guess, hmm, what would I say to that? I guess my first thought is you're going to die one way or the other. So you can die not having enjoyed your life or you can die having enjoyed it. I think that if that is the case for someone, then getting in touch with the spiritual beliefs that you, spiritual or philosophical beliefs that you have about life and death, getting existential with it, really starting to explore, well, what does life mean to you? What does death mean to you? Why do you think you're here? What do you think the purpose of your existence is as a whole? Or what do you think your life purpose is on a moment to moment basis? Mm -hmm. Is it the same? Does it change from one moment or one day to the next? So Mm. I would say that if that's coming up, there might just be some processing around existential topics that needs to be done because there is no, okay. And as I say that, I think, mm, yes, self-sabotaging or intentionally living a life of less joy so that it becomes less triggering or distressing the fact of death, I think is a denial of death. It's a way of denying death. It's a way of saying uh, that's not with the front of the mind, but it's a way of saying I'm not going to die and I preserve my life by not enjoying it. We know that's not rational. As I say it out loud, it's not rational, but that is what I wonder. I wonder if it is a denial of death in the unconscious mind. Ooh, Ooh, and I love that you bring this up too, because what I was thinking about earlier as I've been kind of pondering this myself is, well, that seems like a pretty insecure attachment, right? 
that I have to death. It doesn't seem very secure. It seems pretty fearful to be quite honest. So it's almost like it's, it's so interesting that we can extend, um, our attachment to other, to like every aspect of life. It's your relationship to everything. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, I've just been uncovering that. And I'm like, okay, how can I, how can I start cultivating a more secure attachment to death? Right. Um, and yeah, yeah. Pondering it, um, asking questions about the meaning of it, connecting with your spiritual source or philosophical source can be helpful. Um, but I wanted to bring up that topic because I know a lot of people wonder about it, but they don't talk about it. So mm, love that. I love that you're talking about it and just being so open about that. That's the real stuff. Yeah. I think even asking questions like how does death serve me rather than how does death, you know, hurt me? How does death serve me? I love our conversations always because I feel like we, we just hit on so many different topics. Gabby, you're just so open-minded and flexible with this stuff. So I know I can bring it up. Oh Um, yeah, totally. I'm trying to remember the quote by Yalom. I think it was though Though the fact of death destroys us, the idea of death may save us. Something mm-hmm. along those lines. Though the fact of death may destroy us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The idea is by, you know, in part of formulating a secure attachment with death is seeing how it, in fact, the fact of death actually supports us in taking action in life like if you never died Jess yeah what would be your reason for doing so many beautiful things and for living a a life of joy what what would the what would be the rush there would be no urgency to do it because I have forever to do it I'll do it in a hundred years I'll do it in 500 years I'll do it in a million years until you know maybe it never happens at all and you live a life an eternal life with no joy Mm. yikes that just sounds awful I can't even (laughs) (laughs) you're so right you're so and again yeah right what is the urgency to live the life that you want you would just take forever and ever and ever if and knowing us humans we procrastinate as it is so I'm sure that we would yeah yeah you're so right and this is why I think denying joy is a denial of death as well Uh, it's a way of avoiding Yes. Yes. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's get to the topic of soothing. (laughs) Yes, let's do it. (laughs) But I love that. I love that because you guys so much of reframing your thoughts and your meanings and creating new meanings and new relationships is a way of soothing as well. But Gabby is going to speak. Well, I know that's also more of like an intellectual way of self-soothing, but I love that you focus a lot more on the how to soothe, um, more somatically. Um, so, so let's just, let's get into it. So in terms of, I mean, all, again, all insecure attachment styles and secure attachment styles, every human being experiences anxiety. We just experience it to different degrees. Um, and we have different triggers and things like that. What would you say are some helpful, like quick, self-soothing strategies Mm. helpful quick self-soothing strategies okay so 
first and foremost, we need to let that deep inner region of the brain know that we are safe. And in fact, most of the time, not always, but if we really think about it, most of the time, most of us humans are actually in a pretty safe position, maybe not an ideal position, but most of the time, most of us are in a space where we aren't dying. There's no actual threat to our physical body. And we are actually in a position of potentially, you know, connecting with something that feels grounding. So I say that because I think that one of the quickest things that we can do is check in with where our body is placed in the environment. Just even asking, where am I? Where am I? I am sitting in a room. I'm sitting in a chair. I'm in the corner of the room. So first is just getting familiar with where am I positioned in the world at this point in time? And then maybe extending that out to, okay, what is around me? And so then beginning to name things that you can see around you or touch around you. These things seem super basic and they are basic. They are simple, Mm -hmm. um, but they're not always easy to remember to do. So aside from in the moment, checking in with where am I positioned in the world and what is my body doing and where, you know, what, what's around me, it's actually doing this on the regular before you're in a triggered state of mind because like we talked about those neurons firing together and wiring together to build brain structure the more and more we practice being mindfully connected to the here and now the stronger our brain gets at doing that when we're in stressful situations Mm -hmm. so it's simple but it's simpler if we can practice it regularly before we're already stressed or anxious. So one skill that I teach a lot of my clients is what's called a three by three. And I learned this through a TED talk I saw years ago on YouTube and I just fell in love with it. So I share it all the time. So it's super easy. All you do is you pick three items and you don't pick them ahead of time. You technically can, there's different ways of doing it. But what I encourage people to do is don't think about it. Don't plan it ahead. Just decide I'm going to do a three by three. Upon making that decision, you allow your eyes to gaze around the space, or you can choose to let your ears open up and listen to a sound, either one. I like to use my eyes. So you just gaze around your space and you let your eyes land on anything, anything at all. It could even be the texture of the wall. It could be a speck of dust in the air. It could be a window, anything. It could be a pen sitting on the desk. You look at the item and you name it. And as you look at it, you're taking in all the qualities of it, everything you can notice about it as you take in a slow inhale and then release a slow exhale. From there, you find a second item without planning ahead. You just gaze around the space and you let your eyes land on something else. Same thing, name it. That is A, fill in the blank, as you slowly inhale, and slowly exhale, really just focusing on the item itself in the here and now, not where it came from or where it's going or who gave it to you or what it does, just the item. And then same thing with the third item. Let your eyes gaze around, name it, inhale, exhale slowly. So what this is doing is it's forcing our attention into the here and now. And then we're also regulating our nervous system with a slow inhale and slow exhale, particularly the exhale is helping us to soothe the body. The inhale gears us up to fight or flight. The exhale 
activates, what is that, the parasympathetic nervous system to then rest and digest. So it's really important to focus on that slow, deep exhale. So easy. It's a three by three. So, and it can be done anywhere, anywhere. Like you don't need anything. I think when it comes to self-soothing, one of the challenges I've had is, well, what do I need? Do I need you know, I've gone, I went through a stage where I'm like, I need all the right crystals or I need a light incense, or I need to pull an affirmation card, or I I need this. I need that tangible items. We actually don't need that. If you're sitting in a room with nothing in it, but blank walls, you can look at one wall, another, and then another, or you can look at your fingernail, your toenail, and then your knee. It can be absolutely anything. So what I like to tell people is that you yourself, as well as absolutely everything you engage in is a tool to support your presence. Ooh, I love that because, okay. So this is really interesting because even though this practice might seem so insignificant, it's actually not because what you're doing is you're creating those new neural pathways for safety. And I am calm. I am, I am safe. Um, so it's, it's really the pra- the consistent practice is what makes such a significant difference in your brain. It's all in your brain. Yep. The practice repetitiveness, yeah. the more we repeat it, the more we will believe it. And the more, you know, the easier it will be to utilize these strategies. Okay. We have these two different networks in the brain. There's the, um, default mode network. And then there's the task positive network that both are important. The default mode network is that part of the brain that will ruminate. It will think about things over and over. It'll reflect on the past. It will plan for the future necessary, but not always helpful. And then the task positive network of the brain is the one that's focused in the here and now on a task. And only one can be active at a time. So by doing the three by three, we're activating the task positive network of the brain, which deactivates the default mode network of the brain. Mm. So suddenly we're fully connected with all the details of this lamp sitting here and not focused on all the ways in which I think I'm not good enough or all the ways in which I think my partner is going to leave me and all the reasons why they are going to leave me or should leave me or speaking from, you know, the mind of an anxious attached person. Oh my gosh. I love it. So it takes you out of your head space and into the present moment, your surroundings, which is everything. Everything. Because when we do that, we actually send the brain, we send the amygdala, the message that I am safe. Yes. I am still, I am calm. Everything is okay. Now, maybe not always, but now everything is okay. Once we signal the amygdala that everything's safe and fine, we actually bring that prefrontal cortex back online. Boom. We can think rationally now. Now we can utilize our affirmations. Now we can use our thought reframes, but those are things that are more difficult to use. Hence why if you tell a really anxious person to think rationally, they're probably going to freak out on you (laughs) because they want to, but they can't. Their brain is not positioned in a way to do that when triggered. Wow. Wow. This actually reminds me too of like dismissive avoidance, because the thing with dismissive avoidance is that they don't know how to regulate with another person. So the anxious attachment, that's all they know, right? That's all they depend on. The avoidant though, they tend to regulate through the environment, actually through hobbies, through 
Um, I mean, they do all sorts of things, but I'm wondering how, how do you co-regulate? Like, what would you say? How do you soothe? How do you learn to soothe in the presence of another, like Mm. with somebody else? Ooh, how do you learn to soothe in the presence of somebody else? Well, when I think about dismissive avoidance. Yeah, because they're terrified of that. Like they they don't feel like to them, the other person is unsafe. Oh, oh. is unsafe, right? Yes. Connection. I, oh yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've told my husband, I've told Kenny, can we just like sit here and stare in each other's eyes? Yeah. And he's like, why would I do like what stare? Yeah. In each and cause I could sit there and just stare in someone's you eyes. Do. I could do. And, yeah. And yeah. he's like, he looks away. Like my, this is why I love my cat so much. Cause he'll stare at me. <laughs> oh my God. So, um, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is previous to feeling triggered and anxious is is or you know yeah previous to feeling triggered is really getting down to the facts is this someone that i can trust what are the reasons i can trust them what are the reasons i can believe this is a safe person because if they're not and you're in a rational state of mind and you know they're not a safe person then maybe it's important to reconsider whether the relationship should even continue. Mm-hmm. But if from your rational mind, you have good enough reason to believe that they are safe and that they are here for you um, and that you can be open and vulnerable with them, holding that and connecting with that on a regular basis might then help in those moments where a person, a dismissive avoidant person is feeling dysregulated to then connect maybe with their own body before co-regulating with someone else, maybe still staying in the space with them, but checking in with their own body, gaining presence here, doing a body scan. Okay. From head to toe, what's going on on my forehead? What's going on with my jaw? Maybe upon doing that, your jaw releases. What, how are my shoulders feeling? And once you notice where your shoulders are, maybe you feel your shoulders drop and you can start to, as you scan from top to bottom, feeling yourself melting into the gravity and then starting to maybe feel more grounded. And then from there, it's really looking at that person and reminding yourself, this person is safe for me. Mm. It is safe for me to connect. My emotions matter. And this person wants to know about them. These are thoughts that would be difficult to connect with if we're really dysregulated and we're not at all present. There's that desire to just bounce, just run, get out of here, go. And and take five days to five months to cope silently by yourself. So if we can keep ourselves in the room, in that space, and ground down through connecting to the body... And knowing too that you do remain your own separate person. Right. You always remain, you're not going to become suddenly enmeshed with someone because you co-regulate with them. It just means that you are your own separate person. So connecting here within your bubble and then looking out into the bubble of someone else that's there who does care and reminding yourself this person is safe. It is safe to connect. Mm. Mm. And I love that you mentioned yeah, making sure, first of all, that this person is safe to connect with, 
right? Because that's huge. You're never, ever going to feel as though you want to co-regulate if that person is, is, is causing harm to you. And if that's the, the case, then please rethink your relationship because it's really hard to heal when someone isn't providing that emotional or physical safety for you. Um, but if you do have someone who actually is safe and they just want to work on the relationship or they just want to know about how you're feeling, um, yeah, I love those recommendations. I love those recommendations. Another thing I would say is becoming curious about your own patterns of behavior because a lot of how we act in our relationships have a lot less to do with our partner than, you know, those, they, those behaviors have less to do with our partner than they maybe have to do with our past and our upbringings, the people who raised us or past relationships that we've had. So asking, is this, is this urge to walk away or is this urge to just cope completely alone or not engage in this conversation really about this person? Or is it about something else from my past and trying to isolate this person in this relationship from the past? Yes. Because all of that avoidance is a way of protecting. And so there's nothing wrong about it. And that's a big thing too, that I like to encourage people to think about is there is nothing wrong with you for being anxious, attached, or dismissive, avoidant, or fearful, avoidant. There's everything right about you. That means your brain is working in your favor. It's doing everything that it possibly can to keep you safe. It's just not functioning from a rational place. Right. And so giving ourselves also that compassion and empathy and maybe thinking our brain instead of getting angry at it might then help us to become curious instead of frustrated about our behavior. I love that. And I, I was really thrilled that you were going to speak to this because it's so important when we do start to change our attachment style to first learn how to self-soothe so that you can begin to think in this more rational way so that you can begin to challenge your belief systems on love and relationships and commitment, but you first need to feel safe in order to do that. So mm -hmm. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing some techniques and speaking, speaking to this topic because it's so important. Oh yeah. My pleasure. <laughs> yeah. And Gabby, where can people find you? If they want to work oh. with you, if they want to learn about you, where can people find you? Well, first off, you can follow me on Instagram at Gabrielle Rose Gonzalez. That's my handle. And you can also visit my website, which is mindfulrevampinc.com. And on my website, there's actually some free resources. You mentioned listening to affirmations, Jess. I actually have a page with uh, eight different affirmation meditation videos, and each one has a specific affirmation. And I just walk you through some guided mindfulness and breathing along to each affirmation. So that's all there, as well as a few different free mini workshops. And then you can view my services. So I offer one-on-one -on -one therapy, but there's also one-on-one -on -one affirmation development sessions, which is my favorite thing. And then I've also got one-on-one -on -one mindfulness coaching sessions. Ooh, ooh, I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, I know that everyone is going to really benefit from this conversation. So thank you so much for being here.
Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks everybody for listening. I'm like waving. You can't see me. But I'm <laughs> <laughs> like, bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you are ready to begin shifting your own attachment patterns, you can learn more about my digital courses and my one-on-one attachment coaching package via the links in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive rating. Your support means so much to me.